Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning, even though obviously I am not here uh, with you or I'm, not, I'm, I'm here in spirit. How's that? Uh, but I'm not here physically with you. Uh, as many of you all know, I get to work with our partner, the Exodus Road from time to time and uh, help find and investigate instances of human trafficking. And uh, I was with them in Southeast Asia in December. And some of the cases that we worked on uh, during that time uh, without going into into too much detail, we have a chance to move some of them forward. And so I am on a plane uh, back to Asia right now, uh, hoping to spend a week just working with law enforcement to move some of those cases forward. So please be praying for me. I'm sorry I'm not there, but this opportunity uh, is significant. So I'll tell you more about it, but I pray just for freedom for those who are enslaved. I pray for justice, pray for favor as we work with law enforcement and just all the details that they'll come together. And I'll tell you more about that when I get back. But I wanted to preach this sermon because we are back today in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been looking at this for a few months now. We took a break for our sexual wholeness series, but we want to get back into the book of Acts. Uh, and our goal is to keep looking at Acts really all the way through May. There is so much that we can learn from this book, and I hope you've been enjoying it. I'm excited about the, the second half of this book as we get to it. A lot of people would say this about where we are today. Chapter 10 of Acts um, is really the hinge moment in the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 10 is where this like small little movement of primarily Jewish believers that really has been up until chapter 10, a sect of Judaism uh, is about to explode into the Gentile world and become uh, really a religion for all people, including us unclean Gentiles. Now in hindsight, we look at that and we're like, well, of course it would. Of course the gospel where God throws open the door and faith in Christ is, is all that matters would be for all people, all ethnicities. It's kind of like, well, why did it take them 10 chapters to figure this thing out? But obviously we have to appreciate what it meant for them to transition from what they were to what we are today. God doesn't just dump everything on us all at once, does he? Uh, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that, that he... he moves us forward over time without just dumping everything on us all at once. So what we're seeing in Acts is really God's slow, intentional work in the church to unfold his plan in their midst, step by step, and lead them forward. Um, but I, I think we have to really appreciate just how revolutionary this plan would have been and just how deeply uncomfortable the early church would have been, really at every step of this plan. Uh, I think this is a reality that we don't think about enough, but we should. Um, pursuing the things God wants will require discomfort. I don't like thinking about that all the time. In fact, uh, I, though I would go so far as to say learning to be okay with some constant low-level discomfort, that is one of the qualities that is always true of people who are growing spiritually. That's just part of it. Comfort is not a fruit of the Spirit, right? Like that's not what God is trying to create in us. In fact, I would say comfort is not really high on God's list of priorities at all for us. The things that God values 
things for us are very hard to attain in our lives if you're not being regularly stretched and regularly challenged by the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at this passage and I want us to appreciate just how challenging this would have been for the people involved. God is asking them to follow him into some uncharted territory and they have to go way, way outside of their comfort zone to do that. But I'm so thankful that they did, that they were willing to be uncomfortable. It's so inspiring to me because if this discomfort of Acts chapter 10 never happened, then us Gentiles wouldn't know Jesus today. It would have stayed kind of a a sect of Judaism and it wouldn't have become the worldwide movement of which we are a part. So Acts 10, uh, with that is a little bit of background, I want to tackle this story uh, of Cornelius, the Gentile convert in three scenes. And I think there's something we can learn from each of these scenes. Let's start Acts chapter 10 verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So that's scene one. Let's pause right there. After this vision, what Cornelius does is he sends some men to go get Peter. And you'll remember, uh, kind of as this story is unfolded, the first uh, Gentile convert was the Ethiopian eunuch, which God could not have picked a more challenging person uh, for the Jewish believers to embrace. But if you remember that story, Philip uh, baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Ethiopian eunuch goes home to his homeland. And so it's not like the church really had to figure out, well, what do we do with this guy? Uh, So that was the first Gentile convert. There's some evidence that Tabitha was ministering to the widow in her city, the Gentile widows, but that also probably not really problematic for the church. Who could be against taking care of poor Gentile widows? But here you have Cornelius, this Gentile soldier, and he seems like a pretty good guy. It sounds like his reputation is very positive, but his job would have been extremely problematic for the early church. He's an officer in the army of the nation that occupied Judea, in the Roman army. So he's an enemy of the Hebrews, an enemy of the people of of Judea, and he's there really just for one reason. His presence was for the reason of keeping the people from rising up. That was, it, that was kind of his job. He was the boot of Rome on the throat of the people of God. So this is a very problematic, God, uh, problematic job, and yet God sees him, sees that he has faith, sees that he is interested in, in being a good man, and he comes to him. And God is going to use this good man, despite his problematic job, to really stretch uh, the church into the future. And uh, at this point, probably what would have normally happened for a guy like Cornelius, if he was interested in Jesus, is the early church would have led him through kind of a conversion to the Jewish religion. Um, Now, they're not trying to be elitist snobs. It just, there was this assumption uh, based on 1,500 years of history that, yeah, you, you probably need to adopt the law of God in your life and you need to obey the commands to get what God offers through Jesus. Um, 
they weren't trying to be, uh, you know, weak theologically or anything like that. I think they really believed that it was grace alone that saved us and faith in Jesus alone that saved us, but that was still working its way out into the church and into its understanding. And at this point, they were not really associating with Gentiles. So Cornelius would have been a huge hurdle for them to get over. Um, what they were beginning to believe is faith in Jesus is the only righteousness God would accept. They just weren't totally there yet, and so they likely would have asked this man to convert to Judaism. You know, it, it, it would be easy to stand in judgment against them, especially when we see how the early church evolves, but I, I, I just want to say, I, they're a lot like us, Right? Like you and I, we would believe that it's faith in Jesus that matters. But then if we meet someone who is living a very different life from us and they're doing all sorts of the wrong things, it would be natural to kind of pull away from that person and maybe suggest, well, hey, you should probably clean that stuff up in your life before you become one of us. That's part of becoming one of us is cleaning all of that stuff up. Uh, and I think this is why God is bringing discomfort to the early church, is because he is wanting them to stand on his grace alone. And he knows that that's our human nature, to want people to kind of adopt the customs of our group in order to, to get what God has to offer. But he wants the church to stand on grace alone. And so he's going to use this man, Cornelius, to stretch them and really to stretch what is, at this point, the most prominent leader in the early church, Peter. That takes us to scene two. Scene two starts in verse nine. Uh, Luke writes this, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times, and immediately the sheet was taken up into heaven. Now, skip down to verse 19. When, while Peter was still thinking about this vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So you see the imagery, the metaphor here about God making things clean as opposed to us through our behavior obeying in a way that makes us clean. But I, I also think we need to just appreciate this. I love Peter so much. He is my favorite. Uh, how often does Peter try to disagree with something Jesus says? Like it is a very frequent occurrence. He's, he's an incredible man. Uh, you know, we owe so much to Peter. And also he frequently says the wrong thing to Jesus. Um, now, in his defense, these dietary laws were a very big deal. They, like the commands that God uh, used to tell people what to eat and what to avoid, that was one of the most obvious markers of the Jewish people, of the people of God. And so Peter, he's pointing that out to God. He's saying, God, I love you so much. I am so devoted to you. I have never, and I would never, eat anything that you have said is off limits. And you kind of hear that devotion in his heart, but you also hear in that, what has Peter attached his identity to? 
And, you know, Peter is learning a lot, but you see his identity is still a little connected to his performance of God's commands. And we look at this like, man, oh, those, these weird dietary laws, why would that be a big deal? But boy, that, that is something I can resonate with, that sometimes my identity becomes attached to my ability to keep the commands of God. Um, and I, I think God is constantly trying to stretch us so that it is totally attached to the grace that Jesus gives us, not to our ability to keep the commands. So that's what Peter is learning. He's learning to live in grace, but God has to push him past what he is comfortable with. And so here's part of the lesson. God never stops working on us because he wants our identity to be solely tied to our relationship with Christ, solely tied. And even Peter, you know, the best of us at this point, you can see how it's a little bit attached to other things. And sometimes even when we attach it to something good, uh, or, or sometimes when we attach it to something good, uh, like our ability to obey God, it's really hard for us to see that it's not attached to Christ. It's not attached to what he has done. And so part of the way God uses discomfort in our lives is to surface some of those areas where we haven't really trusted him and our trust is actually in other things. That is what's happening here with Peter. So God's forcing him to do something uncomfortable, to engage with this man that he wouldn't normally engage with. And the metaphor is like eating something he would never think of eating um, unless God said, I have made this thing clean. And then maybe he would consider it. So Peter is amazing. He's going to learn from this. He's so humble of heart. Uh, so he drops everything God, or everything he's doing, and he goes exactly where God is leading him. And that is scene three in the house of Cornelius. Look at verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has showed me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Uh, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So that's probably not the best opening line to a group of people is I'm not supposed to be here. It's against the, the religious law. But basically what Peter's saying, you appreciate the honesty of it. He's just coming right out with it. He's saying, being here makes me very uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfortable right now. But I'm here because God wants me to be here. That is what he's saying. And I, you know, I know for us, it's like, what's the big deal? This was just a Gentile house. But it, like, we shouldn't gloss over what a big deal this was to the people of God and to Peter in particular. The Gentiles were more separate from the Jewish people than probably anyone you and I know is separate from us. Like there was all sorts of reasons that those two groups were separate and stayed separate from each other. And I know we all have categories of people that like we, like they're not our favorite or like if we, if we were around them, we'd pull away from them a little bit and we might even justify that for some spiritual reasons. Like that's really what's going on here. P Peter's like, I'm not sure God wants me to even be around people like you, but for this dream, because he showed me, he doesn't want me operating that way. That's why I'm here. 
That's how uncomfortable Peter was in this moment. But he's learned. And discomfort here is not necessarily a bad thing. So he embraces it. And he embraces it by delivering the first sermon to the Gentiles. Here's what he preaches. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee and after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Pause right there. Notice it's a little different. If you remember the other sermons Peter has preached in Acts, uh, notably absent from this one, he doesn't blame the people for killing Jesus like he did in some of his other sermons, but he also is giving a little bit more explanation of the backstory about what has happened in the whole story of Jesus and the prophets and forgiveness of sin, all that stuff. What we're seeing here is a first attempt to explain Jesus to people who do not have the background of the Jewish scripture. Right? So this is a notable moment because he's talking to people who don't have that shared history that the Jewish people had and don't really, probably have not even really read any of the Jewish scriptures for themselves. Uh, so it's a remarkable sermon for a lot of reasons, but it is the first time that someone is trying to explain Jesus to people who do not have that background. Look at what happens. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So pretty cool moment here, pretty big moment in the life of the church. The Gentiles have entered the story. That's what's happening here. A few observations about this. First, we need to observe this, that the gospel is more important than purity, or another way of saying that is purity from Christ is more important than the human versions, and I would say than all human versions. And Peter gets that. He's preaching the gospel, and in the moment when there is evidence that the gospel has been received, he embraces it, and he lets go of this expectation that they begin observing these purity laws and begin keeping the commands before they come to Jesus. He, he begins to see this truthfully, that faith, is, uh, faith in Jesus is the only righteousness that God will accept, and when there's clear evidence of that faith, because the Holy Spirit is poured out on these people, Peter says, hooray. 
I mean, he celebrates it as if it was genuine, because it was. Now, in the beginning of the next chapter, he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And everyone is going to have questions about this. They're going to be shocked by this and a little bit concerned about what he did. Uh, but he explains it to, to them just as it happened. And everyone says, huh, well, if they received the Holy Spirit, then it must be real. And so the whole church, not just Peter, eventually embraces these Gentiles as brothers and sisters. And they say, well, now we've got to figure this out. What does it mean for us? And let's go to this place that God is leading. Here's something else I think is interesting about this moment. Belief is an inner thing. It's not an outer action. Uh, and we know that. Like we know like when churches do altar calls or something like that, where you have to raise your hand or come down front uh, if you're putting faith in Jesus. Like we understand it's not the raising of the hand or the coming down front that saves you, but it's some sort of inner work of belief and faith that that's what saves you. And uh, that's what's happening here in Acts 10. The text says, while Peter was talking, the Holy Spirit filled them. And I love this. Um, as a, I, I just love this as a preacher. Like, I imagine Peter's like, hey, but I, I'm not finished. I still had some more words to say. And the Holy Spirit's like, listen, I already took care of it. I, I'll handle it from here. Um, as a preacher, I've often wondered, I wonder how many times the Holy Spirit has wanted to say that to me. That's good enough. I, I'll take it from here. Um, but the point is this, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is the point. That is more important than the words of a preacher. Every single time is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit fills these people the moment that they believe, which was in the middle of a Peter's sermon, apparently. These people just believed in their heart and the Holy Spirit filled them in that moment. And because of that, because it was such an obvious work of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, well, who can stand in the way of this? We have to get on board with this. These are brothers and sisters. So despite the fact that Peter, he, like he says the wrong thing all the time, he obviously is uncomfortable in this moment, but he's so soft-hearted and responsive to God. And I think what we're seeing is Peter allows this discomfort to lead him to new places. That's what people who grow do, is they allow discomfort to lead them to new places with God. Um, an interesting thing to think about with the book of Acts is it's kind of a case study in how God leads us uh, because you see the Holy Spirit leading the church forward to new places, forward to new people that he wanted to reach. Um, and it's kind of predicted from the first page of this book. Remember Jesus, he has the believers together, the disciples, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And Judea, and they're like, of course, of, of course. And he says, and Samaria. And I think that's probably the moment where they started thinking to themselves, Samaria, is he sure about that? And then he says, into the ends of the earth. And I think subtly they might have even thought, well, but not the Gentile ends of the earth, right? And you see some of that coming out. But he meant that. He meant for all people they would be his witnesses. And despite the discomfort that they experience, they keep saying yes each time he leads them to a new people group. And that's the reason that they grew that's the reason that they experienced all this incredible kingdom work in their life is they didn't shy away from discomfort. They embraced it and they went where God was leading. Um, you know what it makes me think about? It makes me think about my youngest son, Truman. Um, 
Truman is, uh, he, he, he discovered a couple of years ago he loves weightlifting. And so he's been weightlifting a lot in these last couple of years and just really enjoys it and just like enjoys lifting weights. So there was a time when I remember I would go with Truman to the gym, um, but he's 16. I'm in my 40s, so like literally everything he does makes him stronger, and everything I do in the gym makes me question my life decisions. Um, It just, it's a a shocking contrast. It didn't take long before I'd go with him to the gym, and I, you know, he's lifting so much more than me. I'd be maxed out lifting something, and he'd be like, okay, we're warmed up. Let's start adding weight, and it was so demoralizing. I eventually had to just stop lifting with him. But the point is this, in two years, he has gotten ridiculously strong, but here's something that I've noticed during that process. At any moment, uh, you could stop him and say, Truman, what is sore right now? And he will have an answer. Because in the process of getting ridiculously strong, he is a little bit sore all the time. Because what makes your muscles get stronger is putting them under stress and then allowing them to recover. And when you put them under stress, they get sore. That's what sore muscles are. And so part of the reason he's so much stronger than me is not just because of his age, although that has a lot to do with it, but part of the reason is because he is more willing to have sore muscles than I am. Like he's able to do that, and so he tolerates it. Like every human would love to be in better shape, right? We all would love to be stronger and get in better shape. But the reason, one of the reasons most of us don't is because growth in strength requires a willingness to be a little bit sore all the time. And he has that. I don't. Um, Or I have a lot less of it than he does. I hope you see where I'm going with this metaphor, right? Uh, The the faith is the same way. It's the same way. You know, we read about these giants of faith, like Peter. We read about a guy like that, and it's like, man, he does so much cool stuff. Wouldn't it be cool to be a guy like Peter? Um, But to become a person with strong faith means we must be a person who is willing to tolerate the presence of discomfort. There is no other way. And just like becoming a strong person physically means you have to be willing to have sore muscles, the same thing is true with our faith. We have to be willing to tolerate a little bit of discomfort to grow in our faith. Peter had incredible faith up until this moment, right? I mean, this is the guy who walked in the water, who, uh, you know, has preached all these sermons, who's been in prison for Jesus. He had incredible faith. And even so, here was a moment where God had to stretch him outside of his comfort zone. That is instructive to us for our journey. There's never a point at which, like, we have so much faith, it doesn't ever feel uncomfortable for God to lead us. No, it always feels uncomfortable. And that's a part of growth, is being willing to embrace that discomfort. So let me ask, it's a hard question, but it's a good question. Is our preference for comfort limiting our ability to grow in faith? That's one lesson we need to ask out of this. Is is our preference for comfort causing us to miss God's kingdom work? And all of us on some level, we have a preference for comfort. So what I want to do, I I just wanted to throw a few questions at you to help you maybe self-assess where are you with this and is somehow your preference for comfort getting in the way of your growth. So here's a question we should ask. Where are you feeling discomfort in your life? 
That's kind of the first question that it starts with. Is there an area of behavior maybe, or maybe it's about your calling, or maybe it's about a relationship, or maybe there's just confusion about what God wants. I, I think just identifying, just taking a, a pause and saying, where am I uncomfortable? That can give you some insights. And if you do that, and you would honestly say, I, you know, I don't know if I am experiencing a lot of discomfort, then I, I just, I, I want to say this gently, but I, I think this is true. One of two things is happening if you're not feeling much spiritual discomfort. Either you have grown so much that you are walking in total dependence upon God, or it is possible that you have overly managed your life in a way that God and his kingdom is not a major part of it. And I know that might sound a little harsh, but like, I, I just want to challenge us to let God back in. And when God is present, there will be some constant discomfort. Not to hurt us, not because we're bad, but just because God wants to grow us. If Peter had to stretch outside of his comfort zone, then you and I do all the time, right? So where are you feeling discomfort is the first question. Here's a second question to ask. How is the kingdom moving in my area of discomfort? Uh, what, we know what the kingdom looks like. When the kingdom comes to earth like it is in heaven, there is mercy, there is love, there is justice. These are the things that God leads when he reigns. And so I, I would just ask, are you seeing some of those themes maybe in your area of discomfort? I think obviously with Peter, there's some obvious kingdom elements in the discomfort that he is experiencing. Uh, but let's take another example. Let's take something like an uncomfortable relationship. You know, a lot of times, especially like a relational discomfort, we just want to try to squash it or minimize it or escape it or something like that. But if we take the time to ask, hey, how is God's kingdom working in this uncomfortable relationship? Maybe God's asking us to learn something about mercy. Maybe he's asking us to have mercy for the other person that we're struggling with or, or, or greater mercy for ourselves. Maybe that's something that's there. Or maybe he's asking us to be an advocate for justice and for what is right and to, to really stand up for what is right in that relationship that's struggling. Or maybe he's using you to show the nature of his love to the other person. There could be all sorts of kingdom layers in a conflicted relationship where you're feeling uncomfortable. So the question is just, is there some implication about God's restoration and reign on earth? Uh, Here's another question, good to ask. Uh, am I resisting God in this area of discomfort? And what is my resistance really about? So some of our discomfort is maybe in the category of what I would call self-inflicted because we're resisting God. What's remarkable about Peter is he acknowledges his discomfort, but he does not resist God. He goes with God wherever he is leading him. For most of us, our default setting when we feel discomfort is to resist right? We push away from it. But that instinct means that all of us at times, and we see this in Peter's life sometimes too, we find ourselves inadvertently pushing away from God, resisting him. And we may not even know that's what we're doing. We may not be aware of it, but it's just that reflex that we have to resist the discomfort. And so we have to be curious about that. What is that about? And there's some questions that we need to ask. Uh, what, what's that really about in my core? Is it just I hate being uncomfortable? Or is there something that I'm longing for? Is there something I'm trying to hang on to? Has my identity been attached to the wrong thing? Is there something I'm trying to avoid? Is there something I'm trying to control in my life? All of those questions are relevant and they're central to our understanding 
of what God is doing and our ability to stay open to where he's leading. Now, one last thing I think we need to realize here. Um, it, of course, not all discomfort is from God, right? We shouldn't just blame him for all discomfort. Not all discomfort is from God. Discomfort comes from a lot of places, right? But we do know this about the discomfort that comes from God. All the discomfort God brings into our life is for the purpose of softening us to his leading. It's because he wants to take us somewhere. That's why the discomfort is in our lives. And when we're uncomfortable, uh, I think naturally we, we go one of two directions. We can either become more prideful and harden our heart, um, or we can soften. We can soften our resistance, become a little bit more humble, a little bit more soft-hearted. And I think that ultimately is why God is allowing discomfort in our life. Um, I've observed this for a few years. Only the humble and soft-hearted grow. Really, that, it's only humble, soft-hearted people who grow. And only humble, soft-hearted people experience God's kingdom and the movement of God on earth. Hard-hearted people, they can learn about God. They can do good works, but they never really grow. Their faith doesn't really grow because of the hardness of their heart. Only humble and soft-hearted people grow and experience the kingdom. And so the point is never just God wants you to be uncomfortable. That's never the point. The point is that God wants us to grow. And the beauty of this story is not that here's a guy, Peter, who's willing to tolerate discomfort, but it is that here's God's people willing to go where God is leading and willing to grow when God leads them to grow. They stay soft-hearted. They stay humble. They grow. They it's, it, do all this amazing stuff with God for his kingdom because they're not automatically resisting this discomfort. And you know who benefits? It's us. It's us unclean Gentiles. We are the ones who benefit. Acts 10 is the reason that all of us are here today, right? I mean, Jesus is the reason, obviously, but Acts 10 is the moment that Jesus came to us Gentiles in the same way that he had come to the people of God, the Hebrews. And so we are the ones that benefit because God's people were willing to tolerate the discomfort. And I think there are people out there that will benefit when we are willing to tolerate discomfort too. The story, it, it really is a story of good news for us who are Gentiles, right? Uh, but it also, it teaches us something powerful about what God does with his people, how he leads us, how he stretches us, how he challenges us. Uh, God loves us so much. Uh, and to borrow that metaphor again, like what that means is he wants us to have big, strong faith muscles. He wants our faith to be in good shape and to be strong. Uh, and that's wonderful. He wants your faith to grow so that he can do amazing things in you and through you for his kingdom. Uh, but what that will mean is stretching you. What that will mean is taking you some places that maybe you naturally would not be inclined to go. Because of that great love he has for us, he will stretch us out of our comfort zone and into his will. There's no other way, really, to grow in your faith. And so... This is my prayer. May we not let our hearts grow hard when we are uncomfortable. May we, like Peter, continue to press into all that he is doing. May we learn to recognize our discomfort in life as his grace and his love for us. It is evidence that he is doing something new 
in us. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you trusting you to lead us where we need to be. And we trust that we do not always know where we need to be. And that's why we need you to stretch us. We invite it, Lord, and we ask that you give us the the grace and the patience that Peter had to go with you outside of our comfort zone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.